Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. Joining us is award-winning novelist Amy Bloom, whose books have been translated into 15 languages. Her latest nonfiction, In Love, a memoir of love and loss, is a New York Times bestseller that probes the unvarnished reality of a personal journey into Alzheimer's with her husband, Brian Amici. She was by his side through the diagnosis and maps out in a poignant way how together they honored his decision to end his life. Amy, thank you for joining us. You wrote this book at your husband's request. What has been the public response, and have any of those reactions surprised or offended you? Well, happily, people have been very positive in their responses. I think the thing that surprised me the most is that I had anticipated more pushback, maybe from a more conservative point of view or a more religious point of view. But in fact, I received so many emails from clergy and from people who are quite religious saying, thank you for writing about this. It doesn't seem that people understand what a terrible life and death this is for the patient and for the family. And I wish I had known about Dignitas. Let me tell you what my husband did because we didn't go to Dignitas. Let me tell you what it was like to see my parents suffer. I am in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Now I see myself going to Dignitas. So people have just been very warm in in their response and, and often very appreciative, which really touched me because the reason Brian wanted me to write about it was because he thought it was important for people to talk about it. Your husband, Brian, accomplished architect, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2019. You've made the comment that Alzheimer's is always a diagnosis in hindsight. What were the early changes in your husband's behavior that forced a diagnosis? Well, I overlooked them as long as I could. I mean, some of them were just very idiosyncratic. I mean, he was never a big fan of his iPhone, but he carried it and he used it in his professional life and his personal life. And suddenly he couldn't stand it. I mean, he just turned it off all the time. He said, you're not going to be able to reach me by phone. I was like, well, honey, sometimes I will have to reach you by phone. And he wasn't having it. And he began to carry around a paper calendar sort of very much in the way that my grandmother would carry her handbag from room to room. I mean, suddenly he couldn't go anywhere without the paper calendar. Even if you were just saying to him things like, do you want to have lunch at one o'clock? He would be like, let me get my calendar. And I would think, why do you need your calendar? No, if you want to have lunch in 45 minutes. So there was that. There was the fact that he was working on an architectural project. And I think things were going quite well in terms of design, but he could not learn how to use the printer in the office. And he would have to ask the administrative assistant in the office over and over and over again. And I felt from him that the sixth or seventh time he asked her, she was a little short with him. And he found it puzzling. And he also found it frustrating. So those were two examples. I also noticed that his use of language began to change a little bit. I mean, this is a very articulate guy. And suddenly he would refer to one of the grandchildren just as that little girl rather than by her name. Or he would talk about somebody in his book club and he would say, that guy, you know, that guy. 
And I realized some of this we all do as we get older, but these were across the board difficulties. Also, his balance got worse. He was always a very, co- I mean, he had played football in college. He was a very coordinated guy. And suddenly he was just slipping off the front porch or sliding off a picnic bench or gashing his hand on something. And that was very new behavior. The doctor, Amy, confirmed your concern that anesthesia related to your husband's hip replacement surgery might be impacting his short-term memory. Do you think it was the trigger? No, I don't. I think that it may have impacted his short-term memory, but his short-term memory had been affected for the preceding three years in my observation. And in fact, what was really helpful about going to the doctor, as it almost always is when somebody has some kind of cognitive impairment, was a little bit of reassurance, like it's probably not the anesthesia, but if it is the anesthesia, this will be much better in a couple of weeks. And when it wasn't better in a couple of weeks, Brian himself sort of looked at the calendar when we had circled our visit and said, we should go see a neurologist. By profession, you're also a psychotherapist. Is anyone ever prepared for a diagnosis? I don't know. I certainly was not surprised by the diagnosis in the sense that you are sitting in your car and an 18-wheeler truck is barreling straight for you. And when it hits you, you are not surprised. Everything is terrible and you are devastated, but you're not surprised. And that was sort of how I felt. Amy, 50% of adults with Alzheimer's disease go undiagnosed. What advice would you give clinicians who are often reluctant to deliver that diagnosis? Part of my experience overall with Brian's diagnosis and his illness and the end of his life was that it turns out that doctors are people. And if you are not prepared for doctors to reveal themselves to be people, you're going to be in for some really unpleasant surprises. This isn't to say that they are not often wonderful people. I have several close friends who are doctors who were enormously supportive and helpful. But when you pick your doctor, you might want to keep in mind what kind of human being they are, because it is certainly going to have an impact on things like how they choose to deliver a diagnosis, when they choose to deliver a diagnosis, and in fact, whether or not they can bear to deliver a diagnosis. So I certainly am aware that if you have a lovely internist who's been very chummy with your husband for 20 years, that man is not necessarily going to be the one who's going to say, you know, I talked to Brian about his memory about five years ago because I had some concerns, but he did okay on on the, the questions I asked him. So I've never asked him those questions again. I'm sure he's fine. That is not going to help you. Amy, your husband, Brian, appears to have already made up his mind that the long goodbye was not for him. Was he influenced by a personal family member or close friend with the disease? Well, as it turns out, we had several people in our lives, one in our extended family to whom we were very close, especially Brian. It was his mother's best friend. And we saw her from the beginning of the process to the end of the process. And that was very painful and very sad. And we were fully aware of all the details of how difficult it was. And that certainly helped him make his decision. But also, not entirely coincidentally, he had two close friends, one younger, one older, and he had played football with them both. And they had both played football for a long time. And they both had Alzheimer's. Amy, did you try to persuade Brian 
to look at other options, encourage him to consider clinical trials that might buy time for both of you? I certainly encouraged him to, when he had said to me after he received the diagnosis, he said, I'm, that's not for me. I am not here for the long goodbye. I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees, which was 100% who I knew him to be. He was, as we said in my family, a hard man to stop. So I understood that even though I could say to him, you don't have to do that. I will take care of you. I will look after you and you will be home as long as I can possibly keep you home. He said to me, you're not hearing me. I am not doing that. That is not a life. And as for the clinical trials, had there been a clinical trial of a medication for Alzheimer's that was shown to be widely and significantly effective, he certainly might have joined those clinical trials, but there is no such medication. And the doctors know perfectly well that there is no such medication. There are a couple of medications that seem for less than 50% of the people involved in the clinical trials to offer some delay in the onset of certain symptoms according to the self-report of the patient. Those symptoms will, in fact, reemerge full-blown when the period of effectiveness of the medication, which is never more than 18 months, is over. So that's that's a tough call to make. You know, do you want to possibly, not probably, but possibly delay some further deterioration, knowing that if it is successful, the person with the illness will then be more aware of the onset of greater loss at the end of 12 or 18 months. How did you manage your own feelings? Well, I cried a lot. I, I mean, that wasn't hard. I'm a big crybaby anyway. So I cried a lot. I talked to my close friends. I talked to my children. In the end, I talked quite a bit to my mother-in-law, to Brian's mother, who was a tremendous support. She was very religious, devout Catholic. And when Brian and I shared with her his decision about ending his life in the early stages of the disease, she wept and I felt terrible. And then she said, you don't understand. I am so relieved. I have seen this illness close up and I did not want this for my boy. Amy, in Alzheimer's, there's a fragile window of time to help a loved one get their affairs in order. Were you pushing against time while trying to support his decision? It's hard to say because nobody, nobody on this earth can tell you how long your window of high cognitive function will last. Because for some people, they plateau there for a while. For other people, it's a boulder rolling downhill. For some other people, the boulder rolls downhill and then stops at some later point and plateaus there for a while. And nobody can tell you which category you're going to fall into. So there was certainly some time pressure, which is that we understood that the real window for us to apply to Dignitas, since there was nothing available in the United States, and there is nothing available in the United States if you have dementia, period, full stop. But to apply to Dignitas, he had to have, as they would say, discernment. He had to display good cognitive judgment, which happily he did. And that's why we moved when we did, because nobody could say how long that would last. And I would say that by the time we went to Dignitas, for example, smaller things, the names of the grandchildren had escaped him. He saw 
my niece's little boy, our, our great nephew, we had all gone to the beach together and he turned around and he looked at him and he said, who is that little boy? Now, it's true, the kid had only been alive for two and a half years, but we had met him a number of times. And that suggested to me that there would be more losses coming and they would not be far, far away. And it also suggested that to him as well. Our guest, Amy Bloom, author of In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss, has agreed to join us for a sequel to today's conversation. Coming up, we'll explore the limited options available for Alzheimer's patients in the U.S. that left them with no other option but to go to Switzerland to honor his decision to end his life. Here's a preview of what she says about grief and loss. It's not one size fits all. You got to know what your own nature is. And if you need to pull up in the house and turn on Netflix and drink a lot of herbal tea, then that's what you need to do. And if you need to meditate, that's great. And if you need to watch old movies, that's fine too. And you need to dig up a garden, that, it doesn't matter. You don't get any extra points for doing it the way somebody else thinks you should do it. It only matters that you can feel a tiny bit better in the morning than you do at night. That's it for this edition of Brainstorm. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for joining us. Us Against Alzheimer's A-List is an online community where people living with dementia, their caregivers, and anyone interested in brain health come together to share their insights. We call it the science of us. Join more than 10,000 A-List members making what matters most heard. Sign up at alistforresearch.org. That's alist, the number four, research.org. Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Karen and Chris Siegel. Subscribe to Brainstorm through your favorite podcast platform and join us for new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of every month.